Um, good morning, and thank you for, for joining us. Um, I want to thank Southeast Christian for, for hosting uh, this session. Um, we're very excited to uh, have the opportunity to talk about substance use disorder, and uh, hopefully we can bring some clarity um, to what is a rather confusing system uh, that we call treatment. Um, uh, also want to thank Charlie Vitito. I don't know if anybody knows Charlie or Bonnie Epperson and, and those people. We just want to thank them for making this possible for, for us. Uh, they've been to our programs and toured our programs and uh, partner with us, and so we're real grateful to Southeast. Um, my name is Mark LaPalm, and I'm the founder of Isaiah House. Um, I want to tell you a brief history about me, though, uh, because it's what led me to start Isaiah House, um, although God is really what led me to start Isaiah House, but uh, my journey um, was what God used uh, to, to, to begin this, this thing that we call Isaiah House. Um, I started using at the age of 11. Uh, I started using as a result of a friend offering me a joint, um, and it was a guy that I had saved his life. Uh, he was drowning. Um, and I jumped in and grabbed him, and two weeks later he gave me a, a joint. And I fell in love. Um, marijuana was absolutely my first love. Um, so from the age of 11 uh, to the age of 38, I'm going to be in 13 different short-term treatment centers, all 28 day or less. Um, I'm going to be arrested about 50 times. I'm going to be sentenced to six years in prison. I'm going to have two suicide attempts, two overdoses, and I'm going to be married a few times. Uh, my third wife and my final wife is Tammy, and she's here with me today. <clears throat> and um, in 1999, uh, I was about a million dollars in debt. I was a rather high-functioning uh, attic when I wasn't in prison or in jail um, or overdosing. Um, so I owned my own business, but in 1999 I was about a million dollars in debt and uh, uh, my mom had just passed away and Tammy was ready to check out on me and I was ready to try to go for the third suicide. Um, July 1st of 1999, for the first time in my life, somebody came up to me and told me about Jesus. And all of my treatment modalities that I'd been through, nobody ever brought the component of spirituality into that modality. And it was a, it was a fatal mistake for me. Um, and so uh, I had uh, developed a relationship with Christ uh, July 1st of 1999, and I've been sober for a little over 20 years and haven't gone back since then. That's a, that's a, yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, and so we took our first person in, uh, August 1st, August 15th of 1999. So we were sober 45 days, and I opened my home uh, because I started reading scripture. We were reading scripture to each other, and we opened our home, and within the next two years, we would have about 300 people live with us. Um, so we had a five-bedroom home. I built seven bedrooms in my basement. I didn't know it was illegal. It's illegal. You can't do that without permits and stuff like that. So I got arrested, and I was fined $8,500 for housing the homeless without a permit. Um, but I had been to jail before, so I wasn't really all that worried about it. <clears throat> so we shut down our home um, at, at the advice of our pastor uh, because we wanted to honor God and honor man and man's laws and rules. And, um, uh, and we did that, I think it was July of 2001. In August 17th of 2001, our first place got donated. And so it really gave God an opportunity to move in our lives. And the place where it got donated was in Lincoln County, Kentucky. And Lincoln County had no planning and zoning. And so it was a perfect location for us to get the place donated. Um, we stayed there until about 2007. 
uh, in 2007, a good friend of mine and a mentor of mine um, who ran one of the largest Celebrate Recovery programs in Indiana. They had about 1,000 people that were showing up on a regular basis to, to their Celebrate Recovery. And uh, he asked me to pray. And he said, look, he said, you're landlocked, you're full. Um, we were named Kentucky's best and most effective treatment center um, in 2005 and 2007. In 2006, we were named one of the best in the country, uh, one of the top 20. I got kicked out of high school, all right? They gave me my diploma, and they said, would you please leave? And so that's my education, but I do have the education of 13 different treatment centers and, and all of our experience in them. Um, and so in 2008, another property got donated. It's a 36,000-square-foot building um, where we have 92 beds. And we're going to talk about the story of all of that throughout the process, but that just kind of gives you uh, a brief background of me. I'm going to have Kevin Horn uh, come up and, and, and tell you his, his brief bio. Kevin? Kevin's our uh, vice president of programming, but he's also um, uh, an alumni of Isaiah House, um, and he also went back to school to get his uh, clinical social work degree. So, thanks. I'm going to have the whole thing there. <laughs> Hello, my name's Kevin Horn. Um, as Mark was saying, um, it's. My story is not identical to his, but when you delve into the, the past of pe people that struggle with addiction, um, you'll, you'll find similar themes. Um, so I'm, I'm originally from eastern Kentucky, um, grew up in a, in a wonderful Christian home, um, had all of life's opportunities right at my fingertips. Um, when I was 12 years old, I was actually riding my motorcycle on... Um, some abandoned property and found a, a plant in a tomato cage that was five miles from the next closest residence. So, you know, my mind, I'm, I'm a curious child, and I'm like, well, hey, you know, why, are they, why do they have a tomato cage around this plant? And there's no one that lives within five miles. Um, so that, that actually started me on my, on my path to pushing the envelope. So I found this, and I went and you know and found one of my buddies that was a little older, and I said, "Hey, you know, there's a there's a, a nice looking plant that has a tomato cage. Um, I'd really like to know what it's about." So the next thing you know, him and I are there, and I'm 12 years old, and he's he's about 19, and we are picking pieces off the plant and smoking it before I really even knew what marijuana was. Um, but it gave me that rush. It gave me that <clears throat> that adrenaline rush that caused me to start chasing things that were were not within the norm per se. Um, I bombed out of, of college. Um, I went to the first uh, quote unquote dope doctor when I was 20. Um, he wrote me 132 Percocet 7.5s, 90 Xanaxes, and 90 Somas. Um, a 20 year old man. I went in and mimicked some back pain and um, that allowed me to understand that hey this is this is easy. I can give this guy $75 and get all the prescription drugs that I can possibly handle. Um, the problem was is three months later I was out within a week and a half. And that led me to all of the criminal behavior that comes along with addiction. Um, so I, I bombed out of Moorhead, um, went back home, went to work in the coal mines. It was, it was it's a familial thing when you're from eastern Kentucky, so it fit. Um, by 2003, I was in a pretty, pretty serious mining accident. Um, so then I had a stack of, of papers, MRI results, that allowed me to go to any doctor. And at that point, um, it became a lifestyle. So my lifestyle became, you know, going to as many doctors as I could go to. Um, Considering the opiates gave me energy, and I had a pretty strong work ethic anyhow, I decided to go back and finish a bachelor's in human services and counseling. I really had no desire to use that degree. Um, when I look back on it, um, I can understand that God was trying to push me in the right direction. Um, I just wouldn't get myself out of the way and, and, let, him, and let him open the right doors for me. 
Um, long story short, um, 2012, I've had a few failed attempts at treatment, uh, been arrested 26 times, um, had literally no material possessions, um, no emotional <clears throat> or relational attachments that were healthy, um, spiritually, uh, financially, emotionally bankrupt. Um, so May the 14th, 2012, I entered long-term treatment at Isaiah House. Um, it, it was difficult. It's difficult to face the fact that you had to change everything in your life. And when I say you had to change everything, I mean it. Um, addiction literally changes every aspect of your life. Um, so it, it took me 13 months. Um, I was telling uh, the gentleman sitting up front here, um, I like to think that I'm of above average intelligence. That's what I like to tell myself. Um, However, your intelligence and the ability to know what you're supposed to do means literally nothing whenever you're fighting for your life and you're trying to sustain long-term recovery. I mean, it's all about application, um, and, and I always failed at application. Um, so I lived in Isaiah House for 13 months. Um, the long-term mentorship and discipleship aspect, once I was stable, was the most valuable thing to me. Um, it took a, a, a team of wise counsel, um, good Christian uh, men and women to, you know, keep me between the guardrails for long enough for that lifestyle to truly take hold in my life and then have the opportunity to transition out and do it on my own. Um, I was able to go back and finish my MSW. Um, I've been able to, uh, you know, I, I basically bought the first house that I have ever originated a loan for two and a half years ago. Um, I'm 41 today. So I know that a lot of people in here are, you know, in their 20s or bought a house when they were 20. Well, I've got a late start. But, you know, glory be to God that I've, I have a chance to start. Um, and, and, and that's what it's all about. It's about um, community, um, the community of the church, um, helping others to achieve the dreams and the goals that, that we all know that God intended us to do. So, um, we were founded in 1999. Um, we've got six treatment centers in central Kentucky. Uh, it's a total of 156 residential beds. Um, we've got 25 tra uh, transitional or sober living homes. Um, we're licensed with the state of Kentucky. Uh, that was something that I had always strived for, even though I only had my high school education. I knew I needed, uh, and it was good because I needed other people. I needed other people to make that happen. And I think one of the thing, uh, one of the things with addiction is, you know, the opposite of addiction is really relationship and it's community, right? And so it forced me to get out of my comfort zone and develop community and relationship with others that could maybe grasp the vision and, and help it go forward. Um, so we were the first Christ-centered treatment center in the state of Kentucky. Um, we're unapologetically Christ-centered. Um, and so we were really concerned about how this marriage would be. Uh, but so far, it's been a very good relationship for, for both of us. Um, so we were, at one point, dual licensed. We're licensed as an AODE. We're also licensed as a behavioral health. Uh, one of the funny things about addiction treatment is that we all know that addiction is just a symptom of underlying causes. But for the longest time in the state of Kentucky, all you needed to, to have to treat addiction was an AODE license, which didn't require you to have any uh, licensed therapists on staff who could really get to the core issues of why you are addicted. And so it was really just a strange system. Um, and that's really what this whole class is about, is about the fragmentation of systems in treatment that make it almost impossible to get sober today. And uh, so we got our AODE, we got our BHSO. They have since changed that. It's now a tiered level AODE. We are tier three AODE. Um, we have um, every level of care. We have uh, detox. We have partial hospitalization. We have intensive outpatient. We have outpatient. We have uh, short-term, mid-term, 
long-term residential. We have community support. We have transitional living. We have sober living. And so we really set out to develop this holistic model of care because it's really important to keep somebody in community. And so what happened to me? I would graduate graduate my 28-day program, and they would, they would pat me on the back. They would give me a certificate of completion, and they would send me on down the road to see Chris over here. And Chris would be 20 miles away. Um, I never met Chris. I didn't build any relationship with you while I was with you because it's only 28 days. I'm not trusting him with my stuff, you know. I don't know him. They're going to send me to Chris. Chris, I'm going to be with Chris and IOP for six weeks, maybe eight weeks until the insurance stops paying, right? And then Chris is going to have to step me down in a level of care. He's going to give me a certificate of completion for my court, and they're going to send me on over to see you, and you're 20 miles in the other direction. I didn't build any relationship with him either, and I'm not going to build a relationship with you either. And I'm going to be with you for outpatient, and I'm going to be with you maybe for eight weeks. I might trust you a little bit more because the time frame I'm with you, but in reality I'm only with you an hour a week, two hours a week, somewhere around there. And so it's just a, a terrible system that we've created. Um, we are nationally accredited um, with CARF. Uh, we were accredited with Joint Commission. I think there's like 4,500 standards or something like that that we have to meet um, it was it was a it was a real cool day. I mean, we were we were the second um, joint commission Christ-centered facility in the state of Kentucky, um, and uh, we were the first that was over 16 beds, and that's significant because when you have more than 16 beds, they look at you like a hospital, and so we had to meet all of the guidelines that a lot of the hospitals. Uh, me. And so we failed our first go-round with them. We got a 92. I was so proud of that. And I'm thinking, man, I didn't fail. I got a nine, we got 92% of it right. But they didn't give me my joint commission accreditation either. So that took us another six months, about another $6,000. Got them back, and, and we got 100%, because you got to get 100% on your, on your first uh, inspection. So we did that. The second go round. Um, we have 183 employees. Uh, we'll probably be somewhere around 200 employees by by the first of the year or so. Um, 70% of our employees are alumni, um, which is really cool. Um, so they're alumni or family of alumni, which means that there's a lot of. Um, um, uh, empathy that's, that's taking place within the walls of our programs, right? They've been there. They've done that. They understand what the client is going through. And uh, even from the, you know, the par- we've got parents of alumni. We've got wives and, and husbands of alumni that are working there. We are uh, the only um, treatment center in the United States to actually be a uh, credential or a uh, certified uh, college. Um, so we have uh, classes on site. Our clients get to go through college classes while they're in treatment because we tend to think, as, as, as people in recovery, we tend to think, well, I've done my 28 days. I'm good, right? I'm sober. I've got this. And so I think it's incumbent upon us in treatment to make it far more than just about sobriety, um, that we make it about life in general, right? And so one of the ways that we get our clients to stay a little bit longer is to offer them more opportunities to do things while they're in treatment. So having that free on-site college, um, we have 10 welding stations that we installed in our vocational training center that's on-site. And so they can get their welding uh, certificate while they're actually in treatment, Um, and then we um, are able to hand them off to the next community. So if they do their 11 months with Isaiah House, um, we've already established that next healthy community for them in college, right? And so they end up going to probably Campbellsville University, which is where 
Kevin ended up going, um, and it's where a lot of our, our clients end up going. But by developing that next step of community and relationship, it's so important. Um, another thing that's really unique for us is we have guaranteed full-time employment. So it doesn't matter what your background is, where you're coming from, we guarantee you a job after 100 days in treatment. Guys, that's crucial because a lot, you know, 30% of the, the people that are coming through our doors are convicted felons. They have a real difficult time finding a job. Um, the, the other majority of the, well, the, all of the other ones haven't had any work history for years. And so even if they didn't have a, a, a felony conviction, then um, uh, it's going to be difficult for them to get hired just because of their work, work history. Um, we have 25 master degree or above full-time clinical therapists. Um, we have eight licensed uh, master degree or above medical staff. Um, we have psychiatrists, psychologists. We have nurse practitioners. We have RNs. We have uh, licensed clinical social workers. And so we have a real good um, client-to-staff ratio um, with professional staff. So there's really six components of treatment, right? And you have, number one is, is withdrawal management services or, or what might be called detox. The second component is residential treatment. Residential treatment um, is pretty vague today. You know, I've just seen some new ads. Um, the average length of pay for private pay insurance is about 17 and a half days. Private insurance, good private insurance, will pay about 17 and a half days of treatment. Folks, I can't even, I mean, my, my clients will even pee clean <laughs> in 17 and a half days, all right? So if they come in and they're on Suboxone, they've been on long-term Suboxone or uh, benzodiazepines, I'm not even going to get clean screen in 17 and a half days. So... Um, uh, when you see, I, I was looking at ads the other day for treatment. Now they've got advertisements, 21-day treatment. Well, if I'm an addict and I see an ad, gee, I can go to some place like Isaiah House for 11 months, but I can go to the U for 21 days, what's the difference, right? Are, are you going to fix me in 20? And that's the mindset, right? Is gee, I'm, I'm going to treatment and I'm going to get fixed in 21 days. Um, and that's just not the case. So there's all kinds of levels within residential. Um, we also have partial hospitalization, or PHP, intensive outpatient, outpatient. And then the last part is kind of a, a mishmash of things, but aftercare, community support, transitional living, sober living, they all kind of fall into the same, the same kind of categories. Um, A lot of the programs that you find are singular in nature. And so they're not going to have a, a, a piece of every component within their program. And so you might go somewhere for detox. Detox is three to five days, maybe seven days at, at tops. And what's going to happen is, is detox is going to take all your money. <laughs> You're not going to have any money left after detox. And uh, if you've got insurance, it's pretty much going to take all of your money out of insurance as well because they're going to cap your benefits, right? And you're not going to be able to get um, the rest of the components of treatment that you're going to need. So if we've got somebody that comes from another detox center, there's also some other issues with that. If somebody comes from a detox center to us and they don't use us for detox, um, if you come into residential treatment and you can give a clean screen, you're probably not going to get off by insurance. And so insurance isn't going to pick you up. And so you've gone ahead and you've spent valuable time and resources at one center that can only do one thing for you and not carry you through the entire process of treatment. And so for us, it was about developing a holistic model. It was about using, um, we are nonprofit. It was uh, about using the resources from one component to carry on to the next component, to carry on to the next component, and use those financial resources um, to maintain your stay in a higher level of care, if that makes sense.
Oh, I know what that is. That, that, was, that was to be for the money-sucking pit of, of detox. <laughs> that's pretty funny, isn't it? Because <laughs> that's what detox is. It's, it's basically a money-sucking pit. Um, let's see. This is Kevin. I'm going to let Kevin talk about, about withdrawal management. As Mark said, um, detox services are a, they're a, a crucial component of treatment. Um, I mean, it's, it's crucial. Um, the first time that I came to Isaiah House, if there wasn't a method for them to help me with uh, some of the, the acute withdrawal symptoms, I probably wouldn't have came. Yeah, I just probably wouldn't have. Um, but... On the withdrawal management services, um, it, it does usually your detox services or your withdrawal management services within a residential facility will take about three to seven days. Um, there's a huge push from the state to no longer taper people off of some of those withdrawal medications. Um, so that's uh, it's, it's going to be a debate for the next couple years, I, w- I would imagine. Um, so from your, your federal guidelines, which are pushed on the state for the state to receive money from, from the federal government, um, it has all became, all right, well, why would you taper someone off of Suboxone? Um, and I was actually in a, in a meeting with um, a pretty influential uh, person in Cabinet for Health and Family Services, and, you know, I said, you know, what well, you'll have Suboxone taper, um, you know, whenever their CAL scores and their ASAM criteria um, show that they're ready to taper off, we'll taper them off. And the first question he asked me was, why? Why would you do that? Um, I probably didn't have the answer that, that he, he enjoyed. Um, I said, well, you know, our goal is to not compromise. Um, yes, there's a subset of patients that will continue through detox and utilize Suboxone or Methadone for you know, a maintenance-type program. Um, the, the goal for us is to not stretch that process out to where someone is dependent upon a narcotic for any longer than, than what's necessary. Um, so you have non-medical versus medical. Um, <clears throat> whenever I came to Isaiah House in the first time in 2011 for a two-week um, NET uh, FDA clinical trial program, um, and I will discuss that uh, here in, in, in just a few minutes. Um, so some of your non-medical, um, how many people have heard of social detox um, to where basically um, you pull up your bootstraps and you suck it up and you might get some um, anti-diarrhea medicine, you might get some uh, Tylenol, and it's basically weather the storm. Um, one of the more valuable experiences in my life was when I did that coming off of 90 milligrams of methadone in jail for three weeks. Um, I reflect back on that, even though it, I, I, don't, I don't recommend that for, for, pe- for people. Um, but I, I reflect back on that, and I think, wow, why would I ever, why would I ever do that again? Um, that, that, that just doesn't make sense. Um, the cost. Uh, um, there are varying degrees of, of insurance reimbursement. Um, there are varying degrees depending upon what type of medical detox that you go to. Um, the costs can be easily two to $5,000 a day. Uh, how many people have heard of the 24-hour rapid detox where they basically sedate you and they clean your blood and you wake up and you're supposed to be completely detoxed? Uh, those are extremely expensive. Um, a lot of your hospital-based facilities. Um, how many people here work in a hospital? Um, the bottom line in a hospital is if it's a profitable service, then you provide it. Um, so I, I assure you that the three, five, seven days in a hospital base, your insurance is going to pay up quite a bit of money. Um, so from our standpoint, and the reason that we provide it all in one location under one roof with the same staff providing medical and clinical services is because we can safely um, detox and utilize withdrawal management services on about 95% of the people that attempt to enter our program. And that allows us to establish medical necessity with the insurance companies, whether that's your private insurance or whether that's Medicaid. Um, It's all based on ASAM level of care screeners. Um, It's all based on your medical withdrawal symptoms. So for us to 
to utilize that. We have someone coming from detox. They may get zero days. They may get a week. And then at that point, there's a decision on, you know, what, what am I going to do? What's my next, what's my next path? Um, so we can bring them in and utilize uh, our psychiatrist, which oversees three nurse practitioners, to safely detox clients. And then that allows them to seamlessly transition into residential treatment. They stay in our care and then get the cascading lower levels of care. Um, it does further fragment opportunity for other treatments. Um, there's been a lot of people that have came to us and be like, hey, I really need long-term treatment. I have no ability to pay. Um, we're a true nonprofit, so a lot of times we can make that happen. But at the end of the day, there is a bottom line. Um, at the end of the day, if you don't have um, you know, the, the income coming in, you can't provide all the services that you want to provide. Um, it's not complete treatment. Um, we, I think that's pretty common pretty common knowledge now. Um, I know that several years ago um, it was much more common to say, oh, well, I went to detox. I was there seven days. I'm good to go. Um, But as people have seen that cycle and those people um, have poor outcomes when they don't uh, further their treatment, um, it becomes, it just becomes something that community is aware of and you know that detox itself isn't isn't all that a person needs. Um, A couple different aspects of withdrawal management. Um, we have used uh, three specific types of withdrawal management services, devices. Um, the first, and was the reason that I came to Isaiah House, was NET. Um, and the NET device uh, is <coughs> a small box that basically <coughs> has electrodes that attaches to you know, the back of your ears. And for NET, um, the neurostimulation, um, it's a very... It's actually undergoing uh, FDA approval um, as we speak. Should be by April, May 2020. Um, but that device itself um, is much different than than the bridge device, which I'll talk about here in a second. Is the neurostimulation actually induces the production of neurotransmitters. So if I'm taking 300 milligrams of oxycodone on a daily basis, and I do that for an extended period of time, my brain no longer has the ability to produce the proper neurotransmitters, the dopamine levels. Uh, my, my, the brain chemistry itself is short on endorphins, and that's the reason I feel terrible when I don't have it. My brain cannot produce it fast enough. Um, so <clears throat> with this device stimulating with the frequency and the amplitude of basically a little knob, um, that gentle current would stimulate those uh, <clears throat> the production of neurotransmitters. Um, for me, I wasn't in acute withdrawal when I came into Isaiah House the first time. My mom locked me up in the bedroom for three days before I came. And so I, I was still feeling bad. I was still feeling rough, but I wasn't, uh, you know, throwing up everywhere. Um, so at that point, what I noticed is when they, they put the device on, within about 24 hours, um, my thought processes um, were much more clear than they typically would. Um, I, you know, I call it that, that clarity issue. Um, if you've never experienced, uh, you know, being in active addiction, um, when you do stop using substances, you're in a fog for an extended period of time. Um, I've seen some people, you know, shake it in a couple weeks. I've seen some people it take um, two, three, four months. Their protracted withdrawal symptoms will simply not allow them to think clearly and make the best decisions. Um, the bridge device is a little more invasive. It actually punctures into your ear. Um, <clears throat> Mr. LaPalm was one of the brave souls that whenever uh, the rep came and they were training us to do it, they were like, you know, hey, you know, this is how it happens. And Mark's like, hey, if my guys are going to be on it, I want you to put it on me. I want to see how this, I want to see how this impacts me before I start it as a protocol for the clients coming in. Um, and it actually, the, the biggest difference between it and the NET device is it actually blocks the pain signals. Um, the cranial stimulation will actually block, block the pain signals, so it does um, significantly reduce your discomfort and the pain and the symptoms associated with drift, withdrawal. withdrawal. Um, one of the problems that we've seen with it was the retention rate. Um, if I hook a miracle cure to my ear and in 45 minutes later my TAL scores, which is a clinical opiate withdrawal scale, um, if they drop to uh, 5 and they were a 20, 
two hours ago, hey, I'm good to go. I've got my little magic device here, and see ya. And then what happens? What happens? They have it. It doesn't really address the urges, the cravings. Um, they haven't gained any coping skills to <clears throat> to effectively uh, just manage daily life, um, let alone um, all the barriers that we've placed in ourselves in, in addiction. Um, <clears throat> ACM criteria and CAL scores are are the primary um, screeners for the use of withdrawal management services. Um, if you deal with any kind of uh, residential treatment, any kind of intensive outpatient treatment, um, your, your managed care organizations in Kentucky will heavily rely on especially your, your ASAM scores, the six dimensions of ASAM. Um, if you have an interest in learning how um, insurance companies will authorize treatment, um, that's, that's your, that's your go-to section. Um, one of the things about withdrawal management, uh, whenever I was talking about the, the push for continuing medication-assisted treatment, um, so to talk briefly about Suboxone. How many people in here have heard about Suboxone? How many people have heard that it's the miracle drug for opioid use disorder? Um, I'm, not, I'm not at all saying that it's not a valuable tool in the toolbox. It is a very valuable tool. Um, it's the provider's obligation to use it um, correctly. Um, there are a lot of um, outpatient clinics that will, you know, prescribe Suboxone, and you mix money and ethics. Should this uh, patient taper off this medication? Or are they achieving the goals uh, in their recovery to where they can become independent and productive without the use of it? Um, and how does that impact my reimbursement rates if they're no longer a patient in my clinic. So you see people being on Suboxone five, six, seven, eight, ten years when there was really no push for them to taper off and to become the men and women that God intended us to be. Um, I'm not saying there's not a use for medication. Don't please don't 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 take that away from this discussion. Um, it's just that it's used improperly in a lot of cases in the state of Kentucky. Um, <clears throat> buprenorphine binds to the receptors imperfectly, um, and it has a really long half-life. Um, most of your opiates um, have a half-life of four to six hours, um, so that means that your body starts excreting it pretty quick. Um, well, buprenorphine is 36, 37 hours is a half-life. Um, and it actually binds to your receptors imperfectly, so it, it doesn't give the full um, euphoric effects um, as someone's, you know, uh, slamming a gram of heroin. Um, <clears throat> however, this imperfect, this imperfect binding to the receptor sites allows your brain to be tricked into thinking it's satisfied with the amount of <clears throat> narcotics that's, that's in your system. Um, so it, it can... It can last and keep people from having really intense craving and urges for two to three days. Um, with that being said, um, most of the people that receive Suboxone in our care, um, they are not hearing that. You know, they're they're still in the mindset of, "Hey, I need my Suboxone at 7:50 every morning. If I get it at 8:15, I'm sick. I'm dying." Um, so it it's one of those things to where. And I know that may sound dramatic, but it's not. It, it, it's, it's not. It's, it's the truth. Um, <clears throat> so it's one of those things that as people recreate their life, um, how many people here are of Christian faith? You know, how many people here remember that uh, experience when they were saved? <clears throat> so the, the moment that you were saved... Um, how long did it take you to develop yourself into the Christian that you are today? Since then. <laughs> Since then. Um, um, there's, a, there's a similar process with people whenever we become clean. Um, yes, I'm clean. I'm doing good. Um, but then there's all the other things that you have to work through. It's all the other things that in your spiritual life you have to pray about. Um, it's all the things that, as a Christian, we rely on God to help us get through that moment. Well, someone in my situation would be relying on another medication to get through that moment. And if we don't have it, how would you feel if you didn't have Jesus in your life? You'd feel pretty hopeless. You'd, pretty, you'd, you'd 
pretty depressed. Um, so that's, and I, I'm not trying to parallel Christ with a, a drug, but in the mind of someone that's in active addiction, um, it's a very similar process. Um, so they, co- they combine naloxone with buprenorphine. Um, naloxone is actually a narcotic antagonist, which um, theoretically makes it safe for guys like me seven years ago to use. Um, <clears throat> I was called a zebra. Um, when I was speaking to uh, one of our psychiatrists about a year ago, because um, I'm like, hey, doc, you know, I, I understand that, you know, the pharmacokinetics, I understand the science behind all of the, the, the suboxone studies. I get it. But I just want to tell you, you get high. Um, it might not be like slamogramidope high, but you get high. Um, and he looked at me and said, well, you must be a zebra. Your chemical makeup must be different than 99% of the other people out there in the world. And I'm like... Okay, <laughs> okay. So if, if, if that is the case, then I had a thousand people that I ran with in my previous lifestyle that are also zebras. Um, <clears throat> certain people don't like you to poke holes in, in what they deem is the best way to do things. Um, but the fact is, there's not one best way to do much of anything. Um, it, it requires that comprehensive, holistic approach. Yes, Use medications. Yes, use uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes, use motivational interviewing. Yes, use all the other medical services that help someone um, have optimal health um, in general instead of just um, treating, uh, okay, why did you use drugs yesterday? Um, residential. Um, with residential treatment, um, number one, I never suggest co-ed. <laughs> um, there are co-ed facilities. It's a distraction. Um, I've been to co-ed facilities before. Um, I know why I asked for them. <laughs> um, and so you're going to have the opportunity uh, with treatment to you know, look at a myriad of different kinds of, of treatment modalities and communities. And uh, when you put men and women in the same building um, and they're both just uh, detoxing um, and they're both, uh, you know, not in the right frame of mind, um, uh, you're going to make babies and you're going to have unhealthy relationships. Um, and it's just a bad therapeutic model. And so I, I just want to start, start with that. I am not a big fan of co-ed uh, residential uh, treatment. Um, it's not a spa. It shouldn't be a spa. It shouldn't be a vacation. Um, you see Malibu treatment centers, right, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, um, yeah, there should be some, you know, some uh, peace and some quiet and, some, and that kind of therapy or therapeutic environment. But, uh, you know, we don't have a swimming pool. I don't have tennis courts. And guess what? All 13 of my treatment centers had swimming pools, they were co-ed, and they had tennis courts. <laughs> and none of them had Jesus. Um, so all of that other stuff didn't matter. If they would have just given me Jesus, I might have done a lot better than what I did with all the other uh, amenities that they did give me. Um, residential is the most restrictive, and it's the most intensive component of treatment. And I know that I'm kind of running short on time because Tammy keeps telling me, so I'm going to kind of rush through some of these things. But it's generally up to 30 days. Um, we recommend up to 11 months. Um, there is a certain time frame that we've seen within our clients where things begin to click. Um, and I don't know. Kevin could probably answer it far better than I can. It's probably got something to do with the brain. Um, all I know is what I see, right? And so as we develop community with our clients, as we develop trust with our clients, um, they actually end up staying vastly longer than 11 months. Um, they'll stay with us. They'll make the commitment for sober living, transitional housing. They'll start working for us in one of our entities. And we've got people that have been with us just because of that uh, for years and years and are sober because of it. Um, there is licensed and non-licensed treatment, right? 
And one isn't necessarily better than the other. We were non-licensed for a long, long time. We were non-licensed from 1999 all the way up to 2010. But licensure does hold you accountable to a minimal set of state standards, right? And so I, I will not recommend a non-licensed program. I just won't do it. I won't recommend a program that I've never visited. I won't do that either. Um, you have uh, different types of licensures like I described, right? There are tiers now to your licensure, tier one, tier two, tier three. Are they behavioral health? Do they have licensed professional clinical staff on board? There's a great program here in Kentucky, uh, in Louisville. I love the program. It's not licensed. There are no licensed therapists on staff. And so it's a a gamble what you're going to get, the type of treatment that you're going to get there. It's not a gamble when it's licensed treatment, all right? Um, Faith-based versus secular. Um, There are some wonderful secular programs out there. Um, But, in my opinion, without faith, it's impossible. Without the grace of God, I've maintained abstinence before in my life. Um, but I never had sobriety. And there's a big difference between abstinence and sobriety, right? And so I was white-knuckle abstinent uh, for periods of time, but the grace of God is what gave me peace of mind. It gave me joy that passes all understanding. I wasn't just seeking out happiness anymore um, because I had peace and because I had joy in my life. So uh, the faith-based uh, model is is absolutely in my in my opinion the best model. There are voucher systems that pay for in uh, for treatment in the state of Kentucky. Um, there is uh, Operation Night um, pays fifty dollars a day for up to a hundred days if you are in Hal Rogers districts. Uh, so I think that's about twenty four twenty five counties there thereabouts in eastern Kentucky, and they'll pay for for 100 days of, of residential treatment in programs that they have vetted. Um, there's also the core voucher system in the state of Kentucky. Um, uh, the Unite will work for if you're um, uh, addicted to any drug or alcohol. Um, core vouchers work for opiates only. Um, so if you're an opiate addict and you are in the state of Kentucky, it doesn't matter where, they will pay up to $230 a day for up to 28 days of residential treatment in a licensed program. Um, And then, obviously, we have Medicaid. Um, Medicaid in the state of Kentucky, I think, saves lives. Um, I am a conservative by nature, um, but uh, affordable health care, Obamacare, has absolutely saved lives in our state. So I am a big fan of, of the Medicaid system, of the expanded Medicaid system, Thousands of other people would be dead today if it wasn't for that being enacted. Um, uh, Medicaid will pay, on average, about 21 days uh, of residential treatment stay. Um, uh, Private pay insurance, an average of about 17 and a half days. And then, of course, there's um, self-pay, which can be very expensive. You know, the families are are already, uh, you know, the client's broke. The families are most likely bankrupt because of what uh, that family member put them through. And so it's a very, very difficult situation. Um, at Isaiah House, we're nonprofit, and I think our average, our average client pay is somewhere around $16 a day is what we get from the average client that comes through our residential treatment programs. And then we make up the rest of the money through other, other entities that we're able to utilize and, and grants. Whoops, I went, did I go the wrong way? I just like that sound, I guess. I don't know. Here, we're going to talk about partial hospitalization. <clears throat> partial hospitalization uh, is the second least restrictive level of care. Um, you have your residential, which is within the confines of a facility. You have 10 to 15 hours of clinical group, individual sessions, and then six hours a day of structured activities. Um, so that, that's your parenting, your nutrition, your GED, uh, 
things of that nature. So PHP is the first step down <clears throat> from residential. Um, that's actually a new level of care for Kentucky for a substance use disorder diagnosis as a primary diagnosis. Um, previously, it was more on the on the psych end. Um, if your primary diagnosis uh, was, you know, you were bipolar, schizophrenic, um, things like that, then you were eligible for uh, partial hospitalization. Um, one of the odd things about our state um, is they require 10 clinical contact hours at this point in a residential setting. So whenever you are in Isaiah House for, you know, 28, 30 days, and if you make it that long with your insurance paid, and then they force you to step them down, and you step down into a program that requires twice as many clinical contact hours. Um, so that's just kind of odd, um, and that's it's one of those things to where I can understand it in my mind, thinking, well, partial hospitalization, if we're not providing house, housing, if we're not providing all the other ancillary services, medical services on site, I can understand why they would take up so much of their time if it's a community-based program. Um, the thing is, is most of the people providing SUD, partial hospitalization, um, is in a similar model to us. Um, so you, you basically warp the client's mind um, going from, well, 10 hours of group, 6 hours of structured activities to 20 hours of group. And I don't know if my mind could make it. Like, I commend them for sitting in group for 20 hours a week. Um, so our goal at that point is to make it very educational, make it very fun. Um, you have to <clears throat> appropriate the right facilitators to, to engage them actively in that entire time. Um, if I have a, a monotone therapist that just goes through, you know, this is how you cope with this, um, I'm not going to make it. Um, <clears throat> individual group, uh, medication-assisted treatment. Um, there's also uh, family uh, counseling sessions, as long as it's not a contraindication to the client's uh, well-being. Um, targeted case management and wraparound services. Um, targeted case management is a newer service for uh, the SUD field. Um, over the last uh, two to three years, it has become a prevalent um, service. Um, and it's actually a very valuable service because how many people go through 16 years of addiction and they have all their ducks in a row. If you find one, please give me their name and number because I want to ask them how they did it. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, their goal is to work alongside with the clinical medical staff and make sure that all those barriers in life are, um, they might all not be completely removed, but at least uh, passable. Um, and with the support of, of a quality program, they can, get, they can get over that and become independent, productive. Um, the program length is typically four to six weeks. Um, whenever you look at the Department of Medicaid's definition, of it, um, we typically see authorization lengths of two to up to three weeks. Um, so it is designed as a four to six week program, just according to Medicaid, um, but they'll actually pay for, for two to three weeks. Um, the DMS regulations are quite a bit different with PHP. Um, you'll see uh, if, if a facility similar to ours, offers PHP on-site, then you know that they have an on-site physician, nurse practitioner, and at least have access to a board-certified or board-eligible psychiatrist. So if a program offers partial hospitalization, you know that they at least have an additional layer of medical staff, uh, professional staff, that some of the other treatment centers, um, just the financial barrier is unable to overcome. Um, so it's, when you're looking for a program, if they have residential PHP, IOP, um, if it's in the state of Kentucky, <clears throat> unless they're breaking the law, they should have, they should have quite a few medical staff on site. Um, reimbursement is based on the insurance company agreeing with your um, six to eight year educated licensed professional clinical counselor, licensed clinical social worker, psychologist, um, or even your psychiatrist. And when I say that they have to agree, that's exactly what I mean. Um, people that work in any type of insurance reimbursable program understand that um, insurance companies will commonly dispute your scores, your findings, and spend five minutes looking at your notes saying, oh, well, I think it should be this. Let's go ahead and step them down and drop them a level of care. Um, so and the only reason that I mention that is because it becomes a burden for the organization. Um, I do understand that um, insurance companies have to 
have their checks and balances. Um, but we'll commonly spend two to four weeks on anywhere from 20 to 30 clients each week just fighting with the insurance company to keep them another week. Um, and at the end of the day, um, the expanded Medicaid has saved a ton of lives. But there's also lives lost from premature denials, from untimely denials, from people saying that no longer meet medical necessity and they have to go somewhere else. Um, so th- there's still some work to do. Intensive outpatient, <clears throat> very common level of care. Most people in here, um, if you're familiar with um, substance use treatment, you'll hear intensive outpatient. Um, <clears throat> like if you're in a, an outpatient clinic, uh, especially ones that provide medication-assisted treatments, that can be an entry point. Um, okay, well, when you come in, um, you you know you complete four to six weeks of IOP while we're stabilizing you on your medication. Um, or if you're court-ordered, um, you're court-ordered from the court. Um, the judge wasn't ticked off enough at you this time to say, hey, you got to go to residential long-term. We're going to try IOP first. Um, and then IOP becomes that <clears throat> level of care that people are referred to that once you're on an outpatient treatment plan, once you're independent and you're just mostly working on um, becoming more productive and enhancing your life, then <clears throat> you will get bounced back to IOP when you have a failure of treatment. Um, Commonly, nine hours a week, three hours um, on three separate days of the week. Um, we provide 12 hours a week, um, which is the three hours, the four days per week. Um, it does include individual group uh, counseling, medication assisted treatment. It also includes family counseling and services like those as long as it's not um, contraindicated. Um, one of the biggest differences in our IOP as community-based uh, service is we provide you know, we provide the housing, we provide all the medical services, we provide all of the <clears throat> wraparound and support services. So if you're, you know, if you're looking for, if you're looking for a program that can keep someone for longer just based on insurance reimbursement, look for that um, methodical residential PHP, IOP to OP while they're still in that care. You can get a long-term residential setting even though you drop in level of care throughout the program. Um, outpatient. Uh, the previous levels of care are aimed at promoting stabilization, and outpatient is geared towards further reducing symptoms and just improving our functionality. Um, use of telehealth is increasing for outpatient uh, substance use disorder and co-occurring treatment. Um, there are some pros and cons. Um, there are a lot of underserved areas that require the use of telehealth to um, just access services. Um, there are also um, some difficulties when providing SUD treatment, mental health treatment via a camera. Um, so there's nothing like that face-to-face rich content um, in, a, in a session, um, but telehealth is becoming a, a very viable source um, to bridge that gap when it's unavailable. Um, when guys at our in our program, hit an outpatient treatment plan. That's when they're engaging the community. Um, that's when they're vol- doing volunteer. They do uh, job skills training. Um, they do a formal soft skills training uh, curriculum, which leads them into being able to attain and maintain gainful employment. Um, and then that's when um, we help all of our residents, uh, clients, uh, actually gain employment to where they can become productive and independent. All right, so then we've got aftercare, community support, transitional living. It's least restrictive, right? It's not licensed. There's no licensed staff generally in those environments. They're mostly peer-to-peer. Generally, there's no wraparound of case management services. So, you know, if I'm slamming dope, um, I've been arrested, I can't maintain a relationship, can't maintain a job, one of the first things that they will do is they'll send me to detox, um, and then they're going to send me to an OP um, who's going to put me in a sober living program. And I don't have any tools whatsoever to live life, you know. But that's the typical modality, and it's absolutely backwards. Um, If I can't maintain a relationship, if I haven't been able to hold down a job, I'm slamming dope in my neck or between my toes because I don't have any veins left, you need to put me in residential treatment. That needs to be the first step that has a detox program. That's just not what happens today. Um, Sadly, a lot of them go to sober living. 
right off. They'll go from they'll go from outpatient right into a sober living program, and they are not ready for sober living. So what happens to the sober living environment? It goes right because they're bringing in dope. And it's just a dope house. And that's what we've heard about a lot of sober living and transitional living homes. Um, generally, you know, you're going to find AA, NA, Celebrate Recovery. Um, a lot of the aftercare community support could be free. Transitional living generally is about $100 uh, a week. Um, most faci- the biggest area of fragmentation, most facilities are short-term. They consist up to 30 days. Moving between facilities for different components of treatment creates a cycle of fragmentation. Um, the cycle of fragmentation results in a lack of relationship and trust between the client and the provider. Um, I've got relationships that i built. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I've got people that have relapsed five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. It's not a perfect system because we're dealing with addiction, but... They call me, and I know it. I know it right away. Um, and we're going to bring them back in too, mo- mo- most most likely right away. Um, all components are needed, um, and, to, and in, they're needed in a particular order to be uh, the most effective. So most places, you, you graduate, you get a certificate, they give you a pat on the back, and you leave broke. You leave broke. You leave with nothing. You don't leave with anything but that certificate. Um, when you leave our facility, um, you're going to have a full-time job. Um, most likely, you're going to leave with about $2,000 in your pocket. Um, you're going to have money that you got while you were in treatment. You're probably going to be enrolled in, in college. Um, you're at least going to be getting your GED if you didn't have your GED. And you're not going to have the law um, breathing down your neck. Um, I'm going to go on a little bit here. The model we recommend is residential treatment first. That's the model. Because for the most part, what you're seeing today is you're not seeing people that are just drinking a little bit or smoking a little bit of pot. The vast majority are polysubstance abusers. We have a 12-panel test. Do you know how many they fail out of a 12-panel test when they come in? Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve drugs, right? And so, you know, we're, we're, we're this big talk about opiate addiction. Well, I don't have any opiate addicts. Honestly, I've got addicts. I've got people that come in and they're, they're, if they don't have opiates, they're going to do meth. If they don't have meth, they're going to do cocaine. If they don't have any of that, they're going to do uh, 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 inhalants or some other synthetic or something. Um, the thing that we recommend, too, is if you're looking for treatment, you know somebody that's looking for treatment, that you look for a place that has every component of treatment. Don't put them in a system that's going to further fragment them and keep them from developing relationship and community. Um, some centers only address one aspect. Each must be dealt You know, there's nine aspects of humanity that's got to be dealt with. When, when I was doing drugs, it absolutely molested my entire human experience, right? So it affected me mentally. It affected me mo- emotionally. All my relationships were, were thrown out of whack. It stopped my education. I couldn't keep a job, so it involves employment. It involves the legal system. It involves spirituality. And so you're going to want a program that deals with absolutely every aspect of that. So you've got the, you know, the, and I've, I'm short on time, so I think we're being kind of, yeah, kind of close here, so I'm just going to get through this. Um, but you've got the mental, you've got the emotional, finding balance, reacting versus responding, right? Pl- learning how to play out the tape. Um, I've reacted all my life, and I've learned how to respond because of my relationship with Christ and the tools that I was taught in, in treatment. Um, you've got the relationships that you need to work on, and not just, you know, not just m- my wife, but my children, my, you know, I've got uh, four kids. My oldest daughter still will not talk to me. I've been sober for 20 years, and I'm still working on that because of the damage that I did. Um, uh, educational, helping them get their GED, furthering their education for college and tech schools. Our uh, sobriety rates, when we put them through to college, are 90% or higher post-one-year completion. And so when we invest in people, we see a vast difference in how, uh, how they're able to maintain their sobriety. Um, employment. 
soft skills trainings, teaching resumes, applications. Um, we have uh, we developed uh, uh, employment opportunities within our program. We own a construction company, and so we can we guarantee you a full time job. You're gonna you know if you want to be a painter, a framer, put up roofs, whatever it is that you want to do. We've got electricians. HVAC people, plumbers, and things like that uh, that have come through our program, and we utilize them in that. So they're alumni-managed, client-run businesses, right? And we've got a landscaping company. We mow 600 acres a week. Um, we got the contract to mow Mercer County Schools, Nelson County Schools, Danville Independent Schools. And we own a uh, sheet metal company. Um, our guys do security. We do event management. And our guys do security at the CMA Awards. They do security for the PGA Tours. They do security at the pits in Bristol. They do security at the uh, uh, pits at Kentucky Speedway, right? And so it's giving them all kinds of new opportunities and to be able to learn how to live a sober life outside of treatment, all while they're in treatment. Um, we have collaborations at banks. So I, I got sober. You know what my credit score was? Under 400. You know what I can buy with an under 400 credit score? Nothing, right? So I had to take my $1,000 that I saved so hard for, go to a used car lot, buy here, pay here, give them $1,000 for a $700 car, right? Finance it for two years at 30% interest. Well, what we did was we took $30,000, put it in a certificate of deposit, and our guys can go to that bank borrow against that money at 2.5% interest and build their credit up, right? And so it's about investing in people so they're not back under the gun again. Um, the legal stuff. I was born in northeastern Connecticut. I was in trouble everywhere. Rhode Island, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire. I had warrants out for me everywhere. EPOs, DVOs. I couldn't have told you where I lost my license. And if I complete a 28-day program and you don't help me with all of that, those are lapse moments in my life. You know, now i got to deal. I get out of your program. i got to go deal with all these warrants. It's not going to happen. So you need a program that deals with every aspect. Spiritual, um, the foundation of sobriety is, is, our, is, our, is our faith. Um, uh, these are just some of the guys that, that are, and people that graduate our program. Um, Cho graduated in 2006. He is a senior pastor at Junction City Baptist Church today. He's also one of the vice presidents um, at Campbellsville University. He is also pursuing his doctorate degree. Um, this is uh, Jordan, Jordan Wilson, uh, who works for PR at another uh, treatment center. Um, this is Joanne Early, um, who works in our women's center now. Um, this is uh, <laughs> that's Jason Koppel, who owns his own plumbing business now. Uh, this is Jason Roop, who's senior pastor at Asbury Methodist Church. He's also a vice president at Campbellsville University, also going uh, for his doctorate. Uh, this is Jacob and Melissa Howard. Uh, Melissa now works as our human resources director. And so we can go on and on and on about the value of defragmentizing treatment, right, and, and making it something that's more holistic in nature, and one supports the other. And so that's our program, guys. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope we weren't too confusing. <laughs>